When we gather to remember the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and particularly when we gather and remember that on Good Friday, it is a moment for us to recognize that our faith carries the, it carries the message of love. It carries the, the, the message of, uh, of wonderful, everlasting joy. But that didn't just happen by accident. It was through the fulfillment of God's plan for history to redeem what occurred with Adam and Eve that we all inherently feel when it comes to walking our own path and not what God has for us and the sin that we have and needing to be atoned before a holy God. All of our faith works through the lens of the cross. All the theological works that are legitimate, they all work through the lens of the cross, recognizing the whole scope leading up to the cross and then since then. It's a wonderful element of our faith to treasure and for us to specifically focus on. This evening, we're going to take some time to read through the story of the whole circumstances that occurred. Uh, this would have been starting in the, in the very early mornings on like that Friday morning when it was still dark and carrying into throughout the late morning and afternoon. By this point in the day when it's already becoming sunset, uh, just in the timeline, uh, these events would have occurred. And I would gather us all at, say, noon or 9 a.m., but that's not the best time for all of us, so we kind of have to backtrack a little bit in our minds. But I'd like to read for us this story recognizing this occurred roughly 2,000 years ago and this occurred to our Savior. And as we read this, I want you to consider this question, why did an innocent man have to die? Why is it that an innocent man had to die for us? So let's read. We're going to read out of John 19 and let that guide our discussion. This gets us after Jesus had already been arrested and after there had already been a lot of uh, the illegitimate trial is already underway. So John chapter 19, verse 1, it starts off, Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. 
Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Let me pause here for a moment. Know how Jesus, he didn't answer the first question, but we'll see how he does answer this second question when Pilate appeals to his own earthly Roman authority and power that he's been entrusted. Now, we don't have this statement from Jesus in the book of John, but in Matthew, earlier in the way in the morning when Jesus is first arrested, there is a moment in which Jesus reminds his disciples of his heavenly power, and he says this in Matthew 26, 52, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus was fully aware that as at, uh, whatever his, his request, at his thought, he could have roughly 75,000 angels right there going before him. So in light of Pilate's second question, Jesus does answer, Ela, you want to talk about authority? Let's, let's talk. So here's what he says. In verse 11, Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Well, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. In other words, they're saying, Jesus is claiming to be a king, therefore he is a rebel against Caesar. Well, verse 13, when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Verse 16, finally Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. All right, so at this point, Pilate's out of the story, and now we enter kind of the next scene. Verse 17, it says, Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Now, we don't have this in John's account, but in Luke's account, which we've been studying as a church, there we read about a man named Simon, and he helped carry the cross that is portrayed in a lot of films and other, other moments. In verse 18, when they get to Golgotha, it says, There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign and uh, for, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and the sign was written in three languages, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews, they protested to Pilate. Do not write the king of the Jews, uh, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Well, by this point, Pilate's had enough. He's already like in on the... like in this enough and just wants to be done. So he says, what I have written, I have written. Verse 23, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, they divided, uh, dividing them into shares, uh, four shares, one for each of them. 
with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Even in this moment, this kind of interaction happens the day in which you will have the oppressing soldiers that will go in and after they conquer a little area, they'll just start taking whatever they want from people. And, and so the soldiers in this case are, uh, it was customary for them just to take whatever like was left over from those who were on the crosses. And, and so in their case, they're doing this and uh, it, it's, 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 it's a juxtaposition, really, of Jesus who is innocent. And then here, here you have these soldiers just tearing up his stuff and wanting to take it. Verse 25 says, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. We have four people. His mother, his mother's sister, and then Mary, the wife of Clopas, and lastly, Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved, this would have been John, the Apostle John, the one who wrote this uh, book, this letter, John. He said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, he said, here is your mother. As in like, this is now your, uh, this is now your mother, We're, you know, care for her. And so the, the verse ends, from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Verse 28 Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and they lifted it to Jesus' lips. Before I read the next verse, I want to read for you a portion from Luke's account of this. You know, we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and each of these have different angles of the same story. Most of it is fully overlapped and almost verbatim in certain ways, but at times they add certain elements. And so it's important to read one element from Luke. And so Luke 23, it says in four different verses, starting in 44, it says, it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. Okay, so with that said, let's jump back into the book of Luke, starting in verse 30. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. I do want to read the rest of the story here from John's account, but it is at this point my heart pauses. I feel this injection of sorrow and grief, recognizing that our Savior died, literally a man who died. This is where the conversations about who our Savior is and who our God is begins to deviate from uh, just legend, not that he ever was. Um, but here's where we need to recognize he was a person. He was man. Yes, fully God, but also fully man in his mid-30s, and he died on the cross, uh, uh, probably a pretty sizable cross like the one over here. For me, that is hard to even fully grasp, 
and appreciate and recognize. But I do know that it was altering in every way. Sort of a short story that comes to mind with this is, you guys know our church office is over at the corner of 29 and 33 down the street. And when I work from there, almost every day, there is a emergency call with the EMT services, whether it's the fire trucks and ambulances and police and others. And uh, a couple times, uh, up to a couple times every day, but almost every time I'm in there, there's a call in some way. And sometimes it seems minor, like it's just um, maybe one vehicle, but other times it's the whole crew and multiple, multiple people responding. Some of them are you guys who respond and, um, and our family members who do. But uh, re- recently, there was a, it was just the other day, there was, a, there was a massive response. And I thought to myself, while reading this, I just happened to be working through this, but I thought to myself, whoever that was, their entire day has changed. But more than that, like I was kind of saying to myself, um, underplaying it. Because whatever happens, their week, maybe their year, everything has changed for them. And... S- Uniquely for me, reading this passage in the same context, it stirs a similar emotion of everything has changed after this. The, 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 it was at this moment that disciples and then Mary and others he realized he, he really did die in front of them. The miracle worker, the one who was able to bring anyone from Lazarus to the little girl back to life, the one who was able to feed them, the one who was able to walk on water, now he's actually dead. There's, there's a permanency to it that would have just sat. Then you have Peter, who's all guilt-ridden for denying Jesus just uh, hours before, multiple times. Uh, the, other, the other disciples have kind of a mixed bag of scattered. You have John, who is there and stuff. And the sense of grief just just settles right here in this moment of this passage. And it would be, uh, we'd be getting ahead of ourselves if we just move on to the next portion right away. So with that on our mind, with the emotion settling there and working in our hearts, and, and if you're like me, I try to the best I can to actually put myself in the shoes of those who would have been there and to try to read a story that I'm very familiar with and I know what's going to happen in a few days that we will celebrate. There's still something very powerful about letting yourself really feel the story as if it was the first time you have heard this. Now, verse 31, uh, yeah, verse 31 from John, it says this, as we continue in the story, now it was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. So, so now they have standards, right? Okay, yeah, we don't want that on, we don't want that on the cross. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other let me just pause real quick. If you recall to the other, the other uh, uh, stories in the gospel accounts, we actually learned how one of those men on the cross, uh, on, on his cross, he believes in Jesus while he's up there. Jesus says, today I will be with you in paradise. And then to the other one, he does not believe. It's a very um, compelling story and picture of our own hearts as we have, say, Jesus kind of 
in, in, in front of us here. Which kind of man would we be in response to Jesus dying on the cross right there? But John doesn't get into that story. He wants to get into the next portion here. So, so verse 33, when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead and they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. This is like an aside that John is including here. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you may also believe. Now back to the story here. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one whom they have pierced. Verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea, he asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, not one of the 12, but just one of the followers. We read of these other people who would follow Jesus. They would listen. They would do certain things at times, but he was a disciple of Jesus. It says, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. It's in John chapter 3 where Jesus says, well, an entire breakdown of a man must be born again in order to enter the kingdom of God. Well, and so here we go back to the story. He was accompanied by Jesus, the man who had early, earlier, years ago, visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Boom. Verse 40, taking Jesus' body, the two of them, they wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Friends, that's the story of the uh, the second portion of Jesus's trials his death and his burial. In light of this brutal death, let us re-ask ourselves, why did an innocent man have to die? In light of what we know in Scripture, why did God himself, it wasn't some random man, why did God himself have to die? Friends, the answer is simple, but its impact leaves me with little words personally. So I'll be using Scripture to answer much of this. Jesus died so that we can live. Jesus died so that we can live with him and that we can live for him. And I want to talk about each of those. Living with him. Listen to this. Colossians 1.20, it says, Through Jesus, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. That is the means by which God made peace. He could have chosen all sorts of different, he chose God. Uh, his plan is Christ's blood on the cross and only Christ's blood on the cross. Similarly, Colossians 2 tells us this. God made alive together with him. He made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our sin by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So it wasn't just a, it wasn't just a, moment 
We're talking a forensic and legal dynamic that occurred here on the cross. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. to open shame and he triumphed over them in him that's that's theologically rich in many ways and then just very simply put would be isaiah 53 like we were reading earlier when the cross was assembled and it's by his stripes we are healed by his wounds we are healed why did he have to die by his wounds that is the means by which we will be healed i even think about revelation 5 which says this in which there's those surrounding the throne, several different characters there, but some of them are 24 elders, it says. And these are their words. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were the one slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God. Again, not by your miracles, not by your teachings, not by your, uh, I don't know, pure worship to the Father. No, no, no. By your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. All of these passages, they all reveal that the blood of Jesus Christ can wash away any and all sin. You cannot sin so greatly that the blood of Christ cannot wash you clean. A moment ago, I mentioned that Jesus died so that we can live. And so as we think about we can live, we can live with him eternally and we can live for him. We can live with him in eternal residence and we can live for him on this earthly time that we have. So here are a few verses that describe what it looks like to live with him eternally. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for us, the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Another is Romans 5, which I wish I had on the screen. So if you think about Romans 5, verses 6 to 10, a fantastic passage. But I don't have it on the screen, so you have to listen. This is, this is very rich in its language. It says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? A succinct way to summarize that is our great sin required great payment. And Jesus atoned for that. Jesus paid it all once and forever. Our atonement has been settled. And so he died so that we can live with him eternally. He also died so that we can live for him. Listen to some of these verses. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness for by his wounds you have been healed so his sacrifice models to us a life of surrender just like jesus he himself died it inspires us to live a life in which we die to self and live for christ last verse that we 
have tonight is 2 Corinthians 5, 15. It says, he died for everyone who no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. Friends, the story of the crucifixion of Christ is a powerful one. It is emotional. It is definitely, uh, uh, it's, it's a whole blend of intellectual like stimulation and emotional stirring. Is, all of it's there. Spiritually, it is the story that reconciles us to God. And so as we conclude our time here, I'll have the band. You guys come on up here and lead us out. As we do this, we want to take what we've just heard and try to uh, put some of it to action a little bit. And so we have two things for you. You are welcome to do either of those two or, or listen and worship and sing if you'd like. Uh, one of those is we have communion stations in these three different corners. And oh, uh, we invite you to take the elements, both the crackers and the juice. And uh, it is, uh, it's sort of a blend of self-serve. In light of how we have it set up, so it can look real nice for you right here. But with that, I do. Uh, I will ask our, our elders, the ones who are here tonight. Well, Aaron, we'll have you in the back station. Stephen over here, and then Michael over here in a moment, um, just so you can, uh, if you would like prayer with any of our pastoral team there, please ask them for that. And then the other activity you can respond with is as we sing this, we have uh, several different chairs have these strips of black cloth. And if you would like to, if it would be meaningful to you, uh, you can bring those over to the cross over here as well. Um, if for some reason it feels particularly full, feel free to use the, where the candles are or even the basket over there. This is all our chance to respond, right? We will set the, set the terms here. And so uh, we want you to be able to respond with that if that would feel significant to think through how our sin is that what Jesus covered on the cross. That is why he died, and that is the, the payment. Uh, his death was the payment for that. And then as we take all these elements and as we respond as the church, as we respond as those who are in Christ and followers of Christ, I recognize that for some of us in here, maybe you're thinking, I'm not a follower of Christ. My curiosity is piqued, and I have questions, or I am ready to respond. And if that is you, I do remind you, and you could be here, you could be watching online, and I remind you of the words out of Romans chapter 10. Let me read them for you, because it puts it more eloquently than I can say. says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. As scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And then it says, everyone who calls on, on the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, friends, I invite you to respond to the gospel story one way or another in either belief or in response and reflection. And then it feels kind of strange, full disclosure, to do this. And then also know that in just a few days, we, we celebrate the resurrection because it's the gospel is, is all of that, that he was that he died, he was buried, and he rose again. So we're kind of in this in-between, but so has the church always been for the last 2,000 years as we remember this moment on the cross. So uh, let me pray for us. Today.